1: high-profile public figures, and regular folks like me. You love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other, and I am so grateful to have a place to do just that. And as always, you know the drill. If uh, you dig what we're doing here, please subscribe, rate, review, recommend, do all that good stuff. And without any further ado, I'm your host, Corey Nathan, and you already know that, and I am so excited to introduce our guest today. Curtis Chang has won a White House Award for Social Innovation, consulted with the State Department and multiple MacArthur Fellowship Genius Grant winners. He also teaches strategic planning as a faculty member of the School of International Service at American University in Washington, D.C., is a senior fellow at Fuller Theological Seminary and is consulting faculty at Duke Divinity School, both of which, Fuller and Duke, I'm a big fan of. We have a ton of friends there. Excellent. <laughs> He's a former pastor of an evangelical covenant church in Northern California. And Curtis is also the co-host, along with David French, of one of my new favorite podcasts called Good Faith. Curtis, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Oh. It-
0: it's great to be here with another kindred soul, and uh, happy to be part of this important conversation that you're
1: team. Oh man, thanks, thanks so much, man. I appreciate the encouragement. And as soon as I saw your your new podcast and David was promoting it, I said, "Man, this is this is a big lane." And and uh, I know that you guys are going to contribute. You know, are, are already uh, there's about a half a dozen episodes in, and are already doing such a great job. We just need more of it. So I'm, I'm really grateful and encouraged that you're in this space as well. Or, I don't know, It's maybe it sounds, uh, I'm taking uh, more, you guys are doing it great. Let, let me just put it that way. No, no,
0: no. <laughs> We're all in this together, Corey. And oh, good. More, we desperately need more voices that are calling folks to uh, true faithfulness, and uh, especially in these divided times. So I'm thrilled
1: to be, like I said, with a, with a kindred soul here. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Well, you know, I wanted to start, something caught my attention that maybe help start, give some background about your life. In your book, Engaging Unbelief, you have this really wonderful dedication right at the very beginning of the book. You said to Baba who passed on to me a love of history and Mama who passed on to me my first knowledge of God. So first, can you tell us a bit more about who this book is dedicated to?
0: Yeah, it's dedicated to my parents. Uh, This was written over 20 years ago. I'm, I am an immigrant myself. I immigrated to the United States when I was three, and uh, my parents were not Christians at the time. Uh, my dad w- uh, was especially very agnostic, but he did have a love of history and a love of learning. And I think I really inherited that from him to really seek truths and insight and wisdom from history. And that's why this book that I wrote, that was trying to seek truth and wisdom and guidance from Augustine and Aquinas to meet the challenges facing our day was dedicated to him. And then, of course, to my mom, who, uh, even though I became actually a Christian before she did, I was actually the first person in my family to become a Christian. She did actually have a very much uh, a kind of a awareness of God that I think I really inherited from her and
1: led to, I think, my own conversion experience, even before hers. Yeah. So I was curious about a couple of things. One, before we move on from the dedication side by side with the English dedication is what looks like Mandarin writing. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And is one a direct translation of the other or that's right. Yeah. Oh man, it's so cool. Uh, you know, I come from a, um, like I said, a Jewish background. So reading, uh, we just celebrated actually earlier this year, the sent. Um the it was 100 years to the day on March 3rd that our family landed on Ellis Island. So sharing some of those stories and understanding where we came from and the language that we spoke, uh, and that's still sort of in my blood and DNA and my my life, if you will, uh, that, that I'm now sharing with my kids. it's uh, it's cool to uh, to continue to live that. Much as you were discussing on the most recent episode of Good Faith, how we have a past, a present, and a future, and it's all intertwined, and it has that much more meaning in the communities that we're a part of, so. Yeah, indeed, you know, I think one of the great,
0: amazing things about being a Christian is being part of a multinational family and to have so many different influences be contributing, especially in this moment when our globe is truly more connected than ever. You know, we need all the voices we can get to, help us make sense of this and be faithful to God in the midst of
1: uh, some real profound challenges. So you said something interesting. You said that you became a Christian before your mom did. How did that all come about?
0: That came about because uh, I grew up in a very conservative, evangelical to almost fundamentalist church. And uh, while I have in some ways evolved and grown, I still retain so much affection for that tradition, which I still call myself an evangelical, as troubled of a term as that is. And, you know, we our our podcast has covered some of those, <laughs> those dynamics because of just how much it believes it has good news to share to the world. And one of the ways that that church, my faith Bible church that I grew up in, felt it had good news to share was it went around to uh, the community suburb of Chicago that I grew up in. And the pastor uh, looked up just Last names in the phone book. this is back in the day when we saw phone books with last names of Asian sounding last names. and he just went door to door to invite folks to go to their vacation Bible school. And I happened to be one of the one of, on one of his calls. and I also happened to go to elementary school with his son, who I was engaged in a very long running battle of tag with of seeing <laughs> who was the fastest kid in in the third grade. And so I went to Vacation Bible School because he, that pastor, came, invited me to Vacation Bible School and happened to have a son that I was <laughs> was a playmate with. And that's where I first heard the gospel, and where it's where I became a Christian.
1: <laughs> There's something uh, metaphorical about a uh, long-running game of tag and <laughs> effective evangelism, like tag, you're it, the ultimate. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, uh, something else that I was surprised to hear you share about is the anxiety that you dealt with as a kid, uh, you know, in this last year or two certainly has been incredibly anxiety causing for many of us, whether it's the pandemic or politics or race relations, any number of things. Would you mind sharing a bit about your own experiences and some of the ways you've learned to live with it? Or as as you said, embraced anxiety as an opportunity for spiritual growth. That was on a I caught that on Redeeming Babel on it. Of- yes, Redeeming Babel. So uh, basically, Scott, sorry, Redeeming Babel. I think. Yeah, Redeeming for-
0: Babel. So I grew up as a, as a kid, it was high performing, but what you would call filled with a lot of functional anxiety in that I had actually a lot of anxiety growing up, but I channeled it in very productive, seemingly productive ways. And uh, that ended up falling apart in a number of ways as I got became an adult and where the anxiety became too great and uh, ended up actually that was a big factor in my own collapse of my own ministry as a church pastor was was suffering uh, essentially a breakdown caused by anxiety and so that has been something that I've carried with for my life and what happened was during the pandemic when it became very obvious that uh, the whole world was suffering through a great deal of uncertainty and anxiety. Uh, It was actually a moment of calling for myself where I felt like I had grown enough and learned enough and gone through enough, both healing and experience in my own anxiety, that I wanted to share something with the world. And so through uh, this uh, organization that I founded called Redeeming Babel, which is really trying to produce content to help christians make sense of the world especially the site broader secular world we realized that one of the experiences the whole world was going through was anxiety and that we needed a way to help christians in particular make sense and go through their experience of anxiety and so we produced a seven session video course that anybody uh, as individuals or as small groups can go through and the real i think contribution that we're trying to make with this course is to try to provide a third, what I call a third way to anxiety. That so often anxiety in especially conservative Christian circles can be viewed as a character defect, a flaw, or even a sin, mm. something that you should just pray away. Uh, you should just, just have faith and pray away anxiety. And I think that's actually a, a not a very biblical view of anxiety actually. And so we wanted to actually talk about anxiety, not as a sin or as a character flaw, but actually as a fundamental aspect of what it means to be human. And that, and, and then that is in contrast also then to the other extreme, uh, which is then, and I think this is maybe especially true, maybe in more progressive Christian uh, circles, which is to simply treat anxiety as purely a medical condition for secular mental health to treat. And we're saying that's actually, while that is, there's an element of truth and that we really believe in secular mental health and, and medication and so forth, it doesn't exhaust the full truth of anxiety that it is also has a spiritual dimension as well. So what we're really advancing is this idea, which I believe is deeply biblical, that anxiety is actually not just a, not a sin and also just not a purely a medical condition uh, to treat by secular health. But is actually an opportunity for spiritual growth, and we're tra- we, and so this course has been pretty popular. And in fact, I'm turning it now into a book, uh, to, uh, because of frankly so much we are living in an age of anxiety. The the rates of anxiety and and depression and loneliness, uh, especially among our youth, but but really actually across all age populations, is at an all time high, and it is incumbent upon the church and the spiritual leaders in the church. really provide i think a way forward that that actually offers it as just that what i just described
1: as an opportunity for spiritual growth yeah no it's it's a great it's a great series i'm I'm about three videos in right now and it's something i've been thinking about a great deal something i've had to work on for the better part of the last 15 years you know I, i you've mentioned that that you have kids you know once you have kids too it's there is a proclivity to start what I call future tripping. Well, what if this and what if that? And then that'll happen, then that'll happen. And my head just starts running away with me. Just so one of my favorite verses of the last 15 years is be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, that the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now that's too long of a verse, like when I'm really, really anxious. So I've distilled it down to thank you God for your peace in Christ. <laughs> yeah. and I just repeat it. Like when I'm taking off in an airplane, I, I definitely uh, have some anxiety there.
0: Yeah. So if there's any of your listeners who are struggling with anxiety themselves uh, or know somebody who's struggling with anxiety, I encourage them to check out redeeming That's one yeah. word redeeming and you'll see there you can how to get access to this course uh, that hopefully will uh, provide a way for them to experience it as as spiritual growth.
1: So this is a little bit of a diversion and uh, maybe maybe a bit of a rabbit hole. But I was listening to another podcast that that you were a guest on, and you've been talking a great deal lately about um, institutions and institutions being made in the image of God. That concept which I, I appreciate the more I'm listening, the more I'm understanding that in in one way, it's a necessary sort of counterbalance to our default posture as a culture, being a very me, not just a self, like a individually centered, but like a very me centered thing. So to recontextualize our own paradigms within the context of institutions, and also to sanctify in a way, um, what maybe we see as, as just a thing, uh, and and a thing without a spirit. But um, there was something about it when you were talking, uh, one of the first interviews I listened to, that I I went immediately to one of the early stories in Genesis. Uh, Is it Genesis 11 or Genesis 12? Uh, Babel. The The Babel, yes. That's right, 11, yeah. Yeah, the, the story of Babel, and that that was an early I can't tell. Every time I read through it, I can't tell if it's an indictment of, or maybe the point is that an indictment of institutions, or it's that the human corruption of institution, that's part of the longer trajectory of God's redemption of everything. I'm kind of thinking out loud right now, but that's... No, no, no,
0: you're you're exactly tracking. But first of all, Corey, let me just say, uh, kudos to you for doing so much great background <laughs> research. I'm flattered that you, you've listened to and read some of the things that I've done. That's uh that's quite flattering for any author and podcaster. So, um, and thank you for, for for doing that. And yes, um, I have been thinking a ton about institutions in this moment, and in particular, the ways in which human institutions are just that. They're human. They're part of a human being. It's simply saying it's a human collective, just in the way that a marriage or a family or a church or a nation or a tribe as a human collective and that as human it in its own way bears the image of god in a different way not the exact same way that an individual bears the, the image of god but also not in a completely disconnected way either that we were made to be in the collective as well that you know the Genesis 126 that actually introduces the idea that humans being in the image of God is all in the collective. It's all them and us and our. And so what I'm trying to recapture is precisely that, uh, a way for Christians to look at not just the world, but especially look at the Bible and recognize that God cares about institutions. And you're very right that the story in Genesis 11 about this Tower of Babel, really what that is, is that is the story of the fall just like it was this, we had an earlier story in Genesis 2 of the fall of an individual human collective in the in terms of Adam and Eve, both and both of them as individuals, but also in their relationship, their collective relationship with each other. Uh, really, Genesis story of Babel is then that story told in institutional terms. It's this, it's the it is the, the corruption, the fall of human institutions, but it also is the story of God's redem- beginning plan of redemption, because what comes immediately immediately after the story of Babel and the scattering of, and division of human beings is the call to Abraham. And that is the beginning of God's redemptive story, of creating for himself a people and really an institution in Israel that was to reflect who he was, that was to reflect his image to the nations, to the other institutions in the world. And so this, we really often to need to re- recapture this corporate, collective, institutional dynam- uh, nature of the biblical narrative that is about the salvation of individuals, for sure, this is, not to deny that, but is also broader than that. It is also about the redemption of the world. And the world is made up of institutions. It's heavily defined by institutions that, that, that govern our world. And so God's work of redemption of the world is not just the redemption of individuals, it is also a redemption of human institutions.
1: Yeah, yeah, one of the most profound distillations, if you will, uh, of meaning and what this whole thing is all about, I uh, gosh, this must've been about 15 years ago. I was at this um, two-week seminar and uh, one of the speakers was a fellow named Kevin Van Hooser. And he he was working. He hadn't published yet. It's you can see the orange. The uh, it's actually on my bookshelf there. Um, It's the drama of doctrine, and the way he summed up what he was working on was the story of the Bible. In a way, is still being written, and we're in it. You know, so God's redemption project is still going on, and we're a part of it. Yeah. And then within the context of the body of Christ, we're all unique individual parts within that collective of the body of Christ.
0: Yeah. And I, and really what I'm trying to do is recapture is to give kind of, um, if if you think of the the Bible and the story is a story of, of is a script, uh, of the God's grand drama of redemption, then really what I'm trying to say is that we've, we've been missing a character in the play Mm. uh, that one of the characters in the play is this being, called human institutions, including secular human institutions. And they too have a role to play in this grand drama. And maybe if I could just make it a little more personal as to why this particular theological move is so important to me. One way to understand me and my story is is that I am somebody that has had one foot in the world of secular institutions and one foot in the world of faith. Uh, I became a Christian uh, again and grew up in the church, but I also, was somebody that was deeply interested in the world and the wider world, the secular world. And, you know, I, I went to Harvard because even though, you know, uh, I had sort of my conservative Christian uh, mentors sort of uh, cast some doubt and fear that I was going to get sort of sucked away into the sort of evil secular, you know, bastion of evil secularism. I went because I just thought, I just I just knew in my bones there was something of God to be found
1: there as well. But specifically, you studied uh, poli sci and government there. Government. It was yeah. surprised. seeing how you spent a lot, a lot of your adult life. I was actually surprised to see that those were, that was your, that was your. Well, and that's
0: because I've, and that really to make, that's really what makes sense of my career is I've always had kind of one foot in, in the other. And so even now, uh, yes, I'm a senior fellow at Fuller. I'm a consulting faculty at Duke Divinity School. I'm on this podcast uh, that's a very faith based podcast. But I actually, with my day job, I run a consulting firm that serves secular nonprofits and government agencies. And and my ministry uh, in the past used to be in the church. I was a former pastor of an evangelical church. But my ministry now is really to secular organizations. And that's really what led me to reflect more deeply and say, what is this thing that I am ministering to? I feel like I'm called to it and I feel like God cares about it. But how does God care about it? I mean, what is this thing called an organization? Does it have a, an eternal dimension to it? Does it sin? Uh, if it And and is there such a thing as institutional sin? And if there's such a thing as institutional sin, is there such a thing as institutional redemption? Did, did Jesus die just for individuals or did Jesus die for organizations? You know, what, and it says in Colossians 1.16, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities were made for, by, and in Christ. What does that mean? Uh, that Christ has an institutional dimension to his salvation and redemption. And so I, I wanted to make sense of this, to make sense of my own uh, sense of experience and calling in the world of secular institutions. But also, it also made sense for me of one of my things that I felt like I failed in doing as a minister, as a pastor, which was the fact that, you know, when I was a pastor, we I was a pastor of a church that I'm still a member of. Uh, here in the Bay Bay Area, in Silicon Valley. And almost all of my congregants spent, you know, 50 hours of their most productive life, uh, productive part of their life, working in Apple, Google, Applied Materials, and all these secular companies. And yet, I was keenly aware that so much of what I was teaching and preaching was just out of my own experience of life within the walls of the church. And so little of what I was preaching actually was connected to, grew out of, and spoke to their lives in all of these secular institutions. And so as a result, you know, the gospel that was supposed to be this gospel that is about all things ends up being very much about a small a subsector of 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 things in the world. And the things that actually define their working lives, nine to five, Monday to Friday, the gospel ends up having very little other than sort of these little marginal aspects like, oh, and, you know, be kind to your coworker and maybe, you know, sneak in the gospel or sneak in an <laughs> invitation to uh, to church or something like that. Or or, do, or or maybe maybe do be ethical and do excellent work. But the actual core substance of their work, we actually spoke very little to because the core substance of their work. Was actually to serve the organizations that employed them. It was to advance Apple, Google Applied Materials, and so forth. And so if we didn't have a, a place in God's story for that being Apple, Google Applied Material, then we really didn't have a story to make sense and give meaning to their work, because their work was to advance this being called the secular organization. And if if we didn't, if the secular organization didn't have a place in our narrative, and our big story of God then we really had no way to make have, have their work be part of the story. And so that's really, it was these connections I was making that led me down this path of, uh, that I've been on of trying to advance for Christians and a more robust understanding of how God's kingdom encompasses institutions, including secular institutions. And so much of what David French and I talk about on our Good Faith podcast really is about the ways in which our faith life has institutional dimensions as well.
1: You know so much. So much of what you've been talking about uh, over this last season has really resonated because right when I became I, I became a Christian when I was about twenty nine years actually uh, yeah twenty nine years old so that's right when vocationally I was really starting to take off but it wasn't in the realm of ministry as we would think of it so I I, I often grappled with that that my avocation. Uh, of studying theology and and growing as a in my walk uh, as a Christian um, was separate from what I was doing vocationally, and then something else happened in two thousand eight two thousand nine we got our butts kicked, uh, and I had to start another business. It was just a service business, and it's still around today. It's a great little business, but it, on the surface had even less to do with these things of God. It was right at that time that I read my first bit of Heschel, uh, the the non-Christian Jewish theologian. Yeah, Peter Heschel, yeah, yeah. And he um, he the one book I was reading uh, on the Sabbath talked about sanctifying the mundane, and and it made so much sense to me. And we started thinking of it in this little service company that that I uh, that we started about doing business as ministry. Not, not, to do, not to use the business as a way to evangelize or, yeah. you know, thump people over the head with our Bibles. But when you think of business as ministry, you then treat the folks that are part of the team differently. You know, it's not just about, you know, coming in, hitting, you know, the, the clock and, and just squeezing whatever you can add out, out of their time. It becomes about who you are to them as a human being. You know, and and caring for them in the time that they're investing the majority of their waking hours with yeah. with you. It just as well as you know when you're in people's homes or in the businesses that we were servicing, what we're providing to them. But the the work that you've been doing lately just adds a lot more um, layers to that, a lot more nuance to that. So I've been really really appreciating, you know. But there are folks, and you you alluded to it already, that'll push back on that and say you know, does, does God care about all organizations, all institutions? And, you know, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about, you used, um, the, the illustration of the Nazi party. Does God, you know, does, is that, uh, in the image of God or how how might you, and I would say like, there are some good examples, you, you know, like, uh, obvious examples, like, uh, I can hear God in the Duke Ellington orchestra. Sure absolutely or or I can always see the the, the divine in the New York mess <laughs> you, you know? but uh, but yeah, so if you can if you can answer or but the Nazi Party or the New York Yankees, you know, obviously a really uh, corrupted institution Yeah. <laughs> so, how much evil that? empire, right
0: yeah. um, No, I mean, I would say the the Nazi party is you know in some ways it's like asking the question, is a Nazi officer still a human being made in the image of God? And we would say, yeah, actually, he is. He's corrupted. That image has gotten grossly distorted and fallen and is in deep need of redemption. But they're still human. They were still they, they were originally made to actually bear God's image. It's just that that imaging has gotten so corrupted. It has become an idol, which is really what a corrupt image is in, in the biblical narrative. And so, yes, I would say all organizations were, have an original in, a purpose and intention that does reflect some character of God. It doesn't, not, not consciously even, not explicitly. Remember, images can image their source, not just by being conscious of it, by being unconscious. You know, a, a sunset, a, ba- a baby, a great piece of art, a musical composition, like you just said of England, that can reflect something of God's beauty, creativity, artistry without itself being even conscious of that it's doing that. In the same way, secular organizations can image some aspect of God, not by explicitly becoming Christian or passing out tracts in his products or something like that, uh, but but just by expressing deeply something true about God's character, whether it is God's creativity or beauty or or a sense of humor or uh, order in the world i think a lot of what organizations do is to create order in the world so that chaos does not overwhelm the world and that is that's that's something that deeply reflects god who does not want chaos from genesis 1 right Uh, he wanted to actually bring order into the world and so yes i think deep down every organization bears some image of god and also bears the fall it also bears in some way that that how that image has been corrupted. And so in that way it is part of the drama of scripture that you described, the drama of redemption that God is at work both in individuals and institutions. And really, you know, any any objection that people have to this idea that institutions also reflect something of God's nature like, "Oh, you can't possibly mean blank uh institution. Right. It's so it you, know, you can't possibly mean a corporation. It's just it's just all about money." You know, I just ask. Well, do you do you know any individual who seems to be like overly concerned with the love of money? And they can say, Yeah, sure, my cousin or my whatever, my my neighbor. Like, yeah, that's right. And and are they are they still made in the image of God? Do we still look upon them as bearing some intrinsic dignity and worth because they're human? We'd say yes, of course, right? The same logic applies to institutions because they're human. That's what institutions are. They are human collectives. And let me just say one last thing: is that we just so, you know, this notion that only individuals reflect the the image of God and not human collectives is just so at odds with the truly Christian picture of God. Because remember, the truly Christian picture of God is actually God is not a solo, isolated being. God is deeply relational, and in fact, triune in His own very being. You know, multiple persons: Father, Son, and Spirit joined together as one being with a common purpose, identity and, and action in the world. Multiple persons joined together as one being with common purpose in the world. What does that sound like to you? It, what would be a human analog to that picture? Well, I would say a human organization actually comes pretty darn close to, yeah. to manifesting the fact that, oh yeah, a human organization is made of multiple persons, yet somehow also in that multiplicity without losing their individual identity, still joined together as one being also as one organizational identity with a common purpose, mission, uh, and place in the world. And so human organizations ends up reflecting the triune God in some very beautiful and profound ways, as well as also manifesting the ways that that gets distorted, of course.
1: So one thing I do need to ask, a majority, a vast majority of folks who listen, to this program are secular, agnostic, uh, even atheist, uh, humanist. uh, And if they're still listening, I can hear them screaming at their iPhones or whatever they're listening on and saying, we live in a pluralistic culture, a separation of church and state and all that. And, you know, just like slow your roll, man. How would you you contextualize what we're talking about with my agnostic or or non-religious friends?
0: Yeah, I would say in no way is this idea of institutions made in the image of God infringing upon uh, or forcing upon institutions or individuals to be a certain way. It's simply advancing a way to make sense of the world and a narrative to actually make sense of the world, of which everybody is invited to consider and reject or not reject, but there's no force or coercion involved in it. It's we are meaning making creatures right and so. Other folks will have their own narrative that we introduce to one another. And whether that narrative is simply we're all atoms and we live, die and push up daisies at the end and there is no God, great. Yeah. So that's your narrative. Let's let's share our narratives with one another and see which one uh, is compelling and makes sense. And so, so the narrative that I'm advancing that includes this idea of not just individuals but institutions, uh, I think is actually deeply pluralistic in nature. It is is saying that actually institutions that are secular in nature should remain secular. They don't need to become Christian to actually reflect who God is. That would be my short answer anyways.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, You know, one one of the reasons I struggle with it, again, I'm going off text here, off book here for a second, but is a lot of the way, when I first became Christian, a lot of the way that I trained in how to engage as my mentor is saying that he used was um, engaging today's culture in conversations that count. So uh, you, you might know already that one of my, uh, someone I considered a mentor and a friend was Ravi, Ravi Zacharias. Mm. Um, and boy, like it, <sighs> since his death and and all that stuff came out, I've really had been having to separate the wheat from the chafe, you know? Um, and, and a recent epiphany about that is that, the truth is still the truth regardless of who i might have dis- discussed that with or who might have pointed me in that direction in the first place but yeah i mean and then I don't know, that's also intertwined with the the larger con- conversation of institutions and organizations like rzim yeah or or others you and david had a really engaging talk about liberty university not that not that they're the same but
0: Some similar dynamics um, of ways in which institutions are fallen, even Christian and Christian institutions especially. And that the, you know, the biblical narrative, again, I'm speaking as a Christian, but the biblical narrative is that Christian institutions are meant to be a light for the rest of the world, right? We're supposed to model what it means to treat human beings with dignity and with justice um, and care and concern. And so when Christian institutions like Zim, uh, Ravi Zacharias ministries, or Liberty University, so distort the image. It's not just that we are hurting our own people, we're certainly doing that, and that's grievous enough as it is, but we are also uh, casting out the exact wrong image. We are, we are uh, not being true to our purpose in the world yeah. to reflect God's light, his image, to the rest of the world's institutions.
1: Mm. Well, uh, there, there's so much more to dig into there, and I look forward to hearing more about it. It sounds like it's um, theological work that you're you're working out right now, so uh, I'm looking forward to listening to a lot more about it.
0: Yeah, I, I know, I, there's some listeners who are like, "Wow, he's just talking a lot of abstractions there." Like, what is the actual practical implications of it? The actual practical implication of it is something that I've been very much experiencing in these last nine months because of my work on the vaccine. Uh, So I, you know, started a effort called Christians, the vaccine, which is trying to persuade white evangelical Christians who are some of the most vaccine resistant or hesitant populations to get vaccinated. And the reason why this connects to all of what we're talking about with institutions is because, you know, there was a one key insight we brought to the national conversation on this was to try to help Christians realize that really what was going on was not a question of of religion versus science or anything like that. It really was a question of institutional trust that really at the end of the day, whether any of us take the vaccine is really a product of whether or not we trust the institutions behind the vaccine because none of us, other than a few very elite scientists, know all the studies, know the exact chemistry and the biology involved. I mean, you and I are taking the vaccine because we trust the FDA, the CDC, the pharmaceutical research companies and so forth, local public health. And so, and, and to understand the high rates of vaccine hesitance and suspicion among white evangelicals, you have to understand that what's going on is that they distrust the institutions behind the vaccine. And one of the reasons why there is such built-in, there's, there's it's a complex set of causes, but one of them from a long-term theological perspective is that institutions have been so stripped out of the evangelical theology, the theological imagination, that they have no way of realizing, well, wait a minute, maybe, I, maybe God actually created institutions to help me make sense of the world and for him to actually execute part of his purposes in the world. And, but instead, they, because they don't have a place for institutions in their story, automatically think of it as other, think of it as, uh, you know, not of God and immediately held in suspicion and actually, uh, you know, activates a reflexive suspicion and distrust. And so, you know, as much as we're talking about the sort of theology of institutions, it has very real practical implications in the world for all of us, Christians or non-Christians, you know? I mean, you know, non-Christian is affected by whether or not evangelical Christians take the vaccine or not, which in turn, like I said, is a product of how they
1: think about institutions in their own religion. That's so interesting. You intuitively sensed a, a set of questions I was going to ask about the vaccines. And for those who are interested, I, I think there is, um, that, that's part of Redeeming Babel too. It's the, part of Redeeming Babel.
0: We have our yeah. material there is on a separate website called Christians and the Vaccine. So that's where, yeah, to direct people to if they're interested in that, where we produced a set of material that's really aimed at persuading conservative Christians around the vaccine.
1: But you, you've been very vocal in in high profile national outlets. I, I think there was a New York Times column uh, earlier in the fall. You've been on CNN. You've been you've been showing up and very vocal about it. But you know you you offered a different analysis than I thought you would. I was going to ask you to, to help us understand how the evangelical community got here. And I identify as evangelical. I think you you still do too. Yeah. Um, and that's not the, but now I can see what you're saying, because if the way that I understand my salvation is my salvation, my walk with Christ, you know, all of this single uh, first person stuff, then the distrust of institutions um, it is sort of built into that understanding That's right. of salvation. We just
0: naturally assume that institutions are out to get us, right? They're an infringement upon my individual liberty or autonomy and so forth. And we don't have, again, we they, they don't, it's like we don't have a place in them in our imagination, in our story that we tell ourselves. So at best, they're irrelevant. At worst, they're an enemy. Right. And so this is why it's so important to help Christians think institutionally, because it turns out how, whether or not we have a place for institutions in our moral and spiritual imagination shapes very profoundly how we make sense of a lot of things, including something like whether or not we should trust the vaccine.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is, I I, I do want to go back a little bit, rewind, because your work, uh, the first book that I mentioned uh, where let me get my notes here we jumped around a lot more than I yeah. thought we would um engaging unbelief so, so just to kind of give a, a brief uh, report uh, a book report yeah. and you can correct me what'm what, uh, I'm, I'm sort of not giving the right the right value to or, or or articulating the right way. so much of the book is a study of Augustine's City of God and Thomas Aquinas's Summa contra gentilis. That's right. Okay. Um, and how Augustine was engaging with the surrounding pagan culture and Aquinas was engaging with the influence of a growing Muslim culture, uh, but each also equipping the church to engage differently than their respective defaults, like Aquinas's in Aquinas's time, the Crusades. That's right. So, the way you summarize their overlapping approaches uh, and that you revisit in the conclusion of the book is by one, entering the Challenger's story, two, retelling that story and then three recapturing that retold tale with the gospel meta narrative so it's <laughs> <laughs> a
0: lot of a lot of big words i know
1: <laughs> well no, you know when you when you distill it down it, it really makes a ton of sense uh, it, it's like paul on mars hill that's right he communicated he he knew he read the room basically
0: that's right and and, and so you know it's basically saying that in this in these divided times that we live in we can't just shout at each other we can't just scream each other down if we're going to have actually any meaningful uh, conversation that leads somewhere we've got to figure out a way to talk to one another not by some you know arbitrary sort of way that we decide has to be the terms of the conversation if we're really genuinely interested in in talking with the other we have to be able to talk to the other on the other's terms yeah you know in in the story that the other holds and make sense of it and that's why you know, the example of Augustine and Aquinas is so inspiring to me is because they spoke in Augustine to pagan Romans and Aquinas to the sort of Greek culture, especially the, that was a Muslim dominated scientific culture around him. He didn't speak to them in their own Christian terms. They spoke to them in pagan terms or in Muslim terms or Muslim slash Aristotelian terms. And so that's what we need to recapture is the ability to enter other people's stories and then to be able to enter it so well that we can actually retell their story almost in some ways better than them. You know, to say like, I think what you're really wanting, desiring is this, isn't it? And then to actually then, only then can we have earned the right to introduce the gospel story as a possible resolution to the various ways their stories uh, from our retelling may be needing something that's currently missing in it right now. And so, and and the Christian to tie back to the Christians of the Vaccine work, I'm actually doing that to my own Christian, to my evangelical, fellow evangelicals. I am trying to, because, because secular public health cannot do that to them. Mm. They're going they, Secular public health will not be able to speak to the evangelicals in evangelical ease, right? right. Um, so for the evangelicals who think the vaccine is the mark of the beast, the CDC is not going to be able to persuade them otherwise. Right. It's going to take somebody like me who can at least enter their language and say, oh, let's talk about the mark of the beast let's take that, let's take that, your concern really seriously, respectfully, but then let's really look at the text. You know, what is the text really saying right there in Revelation and try to retell that story, hopefully in more accurate ways, in ways that, that the listener can actually say, yeah, well, that, yeah, I, that sounds like an actually accurate retelling,
1: uh, but hopefully do it in a more faithful, ultimately faithful to Jesus way. You know, it's a question that I kept on, that kept on arising for me as I went through the book is that, is our conversation, is the conversation outside of the church, is that where it is, or should we be having these conversations inside the church? You know, is the is the intended audience for a lot of this stuff internal or external? But I'm guessing you're going to say it's it's a combination of both.
0: I think it's both because the reality is is that well, certainly, it I think it certainly applies to folks who don't share our story at all in terms of a non Christian audience that we have to make intelligible the claims we are making about, and any of it matters, whether it's about abortion, race, economic justice, uh, climate change, Like we've got to find some way to actually talk about this uh, across the divides. But also within the church, the reality is we're so divided internally as a church that in some ways, I mean, and you'll you probably have experienced this, but Sometimes you have Christians saying like, are, are we even following the same Jesus? Are we yeah. reading from the same Bible? And so that, that sense of alienation and the fact that we don't share the same story is present even when people who today ostensibly call themselves Christian. So this ability to speak cross-culturally and to enter into each other's stories is more needed than ever on, on both with, you know, on, on all levels, both outside outside and inside the church.
1: So the the reason I was just flipping through the book was because there are two other characters who loom, loom large throughout the book, and one is I I forgot their names, but one is um, discovered that he is actually uh, Native American, yeah. and the other is I, I don't know what you would call him. He's like a he's, he's like a postmodern. Nietzsche.
0: He's a he's a true he's a relativist. He's yeah, more relativist,
1: like post postmodern. He's yeah like post
0: postmodern. That's right. Nietzsche
1: yeah. on steroids or something. That's right. <laughs> what because yeah. so one's one's challenge to you. Was this is a story of appropriation and domination? You, you, it has not only does it have no authority with me, but you've you, you've lost your opportunity now. You've you've ruined it. Um, the other is it's all meaningless. You know, how, we, how can we know anything? What what's the word for it? Epistemology. We, there's no way anybody can know anything. Kind of a thing. Right. But I wonder. See, one of the questions I had is you. I think you initially published this about twenty years ago. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I wonder if that is a more urgent conversation to have and to be in conversation with, uh, let's call them Mike and Joe. I, I It's like yeah, Alex. And, really, yeah. yeah, Or if it's what's been studied again and again over the last couple of years or over the last five years, really, since the advent in the post-Trump era within, in particular, white evangelical uh, American churches.
0: I think it's all of the above, right? Like we are to be all things to all people.
1: Yeah.
0: uh, Greek to the Greek, the Greek, Jew, the Jew. And so it all depends, I think, on, you know, who we are called to in a particular situation to speak to. So in this last nine months, I felt particularly called to speak to the evangelical church, to the white conservative evangelical church on the vaccine. I've got to speak conservative white evangelical leads <laughs> and, and crawl, crawl out on, on everything that I can find, including my own experience growing up in precisely that background, and see if I can establish some common ground to actually uh, convey hope what I believe is true. Yeah. And but then there'll be other thing other challenges, other contexts where our audiences will be different and to, to those that will need to speak a different kind of language, so to speak.
1: Yeah, yeah, I you know, it's funny, I, I, I tend to agree. I I keep on asking the question, um, is it, is it more urgent this one or that one? But I I keep on coming back around to the same answer that you just gave that all of the above and each of us are uniquely equipped, you you know, like, uh, with a Jewish background, I am more, I see the flaws in, in, um, uh, attempts to reach out to, uh, Jewish neighbors, uh, by, I went to a, a big Baptist church here in Santa Clarita for the first Ten years or so after I became a Christian, and the approach was basically that Jewish thing. That's really cute, but here's the real answer. <laughs> <You>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, know? that's like, right. We we moved, we moved on from that story, that Jewish, the, Jew, yeah. the Jewish story. <laughs> yeah. never never minding. Actually, that is the origins of our faith.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, so, yeah, yeah. So, so some of the guys that you you mentioned in here uh, really, really, um, N.T. Wright became a, a really a great go-to for me. I, I think he was just publishing those first two volumes of the big the big volumes oh man that was a treasure trove for me to yes what a tr- what a treasure to the church uh that in these days
0: so yeah I, I you know i do think this is a case where again we all this is back to the idea of imaging god we all reflect some little slice of of the beautiful diversity that is found in god and his people and the challenge of calling in these days i think is to sort through all the different divisions and problems that affect us and say which of all of this are we called to has god made us and crafted something about who we are to equip us to speak to at whatever level whether it's at the national level or just at the local level or to my neighbor or to my uh, school association or my my company or at least for a christian called to beer God's redemptive image in the world. I think this is the question: is is you know what of all of this is is uh, God calling us to address?
1: Yeah, you know, and and again, going back to the question about my non-religious friends, the it, it's a worthwhile conversation to have, e- even if it's not an explicitly evangelical conversation, like an invitation type of a conversation, you know, the relationship means more than any sort of transaction that we might be able to score, if you will, that might be sort of a blunt way of putting it. But I think where there is, there is fruitful ground, just to enrich that conversation enrich that relationship is the question of what does this all mean? What are we all doing here together? You know, and whether it's the non-Christian Jewish approach of tikkun olam, or, you know, just make the world a better place, or my little niece who, you know, uh, she's not little, she's she's a powerful young, young woman, um, said, be the change you want to see in the world, you know, just that sense of, of, of meaning uh, really resonates across all different uh, religions and, and types of people and backgrounds, you know, so I think there's fruitful ground there. I did have I could do this all day, by the way. So I don't know if you can tell. I have like 104 pages of notes that we could get to. Uh,
0: Again, Corey, I just (laughs) have to say, if there's any listener out there who's, um, you know, kind of doubts how much work Corey clearly puts into this podcast, it's really impressive. This is a, I've been into a lot of podcasts and rarely do I have a host who's done this much background research and reading. It's quite flattering, but also quite impressive, uh, Corey, to, to what you're doing here. So kudos to your listeners to For you for them finding somebody who's uh, taking their work of educating the audience really seriously here
1: well i i really do appreciate you saying that i i don't consider it work though because the folks that i do bring on one of the real just thrills of, of doing this project is they're all folks that i'm a real genuine fan of you know i i do try to seek out some folks who are a little bit adjacent that i have some differences with uh, you know, I'm sure once we start digging in, we could find things theologically that we might want to really explore and grapple with. But you know, it's folks that, like I said, that I'm a fan of. So it's sort of selfishly my opportunity and my excuse to just do a deep dive. You know, <laughs> in the that's videos. great.
0: That's the that's how you do good work.
1: So yeah, yeah. So it's it's fun. It doesn't feel like work. I did have a question. Speaking of folks that I'm a fan of, David French, man, wow. How did you get to know David? And, and how did the idea to do the new podcast Good Faith come about?
0: Yeah, David and I have been friends for almost 30 years now. We're part of a, uh, it's funny, we're part of a fantasy baseball league that has been in operation for over 30 years. It started at Harvard and um, we get together every year. At this point now, though, you know, every year to draft our baseball team, but at this point it's its mainly an excuse to, you know, re- rekindle friendships and relationships. So we've been friends for, thir- for almost 30 years in that and uh, have supported each other's work, you know, in different spheres. And then in the last few years, it's become apparent that our sense of calling, uh, to get back to what we were talking about earlier, our sense of like where is God calling us in all in this multi-dimensional world, was starting to overlap more and more right at this intersection between faith and secular institutions. Now he you know he writes so much more about politics and law, but obviously you can't understand politics and law if you don't understand political institutions and legal institutions. So he was coming at it for more from that sort of politics and law. I was coming at it more from the theological angle of how do you make sense of institutions. And we realized, wow, we're talking about the same thing and, and our our work would be so much uh, richer if we just started doing more stuff together. And so that's really where the idea for the podcast, uh, Good Faith, uh, comes from, and where we're trying to really bring a robust, rich intersection of faith and public life. And I like to, I like to say I'm David's theological wingman. You know so yeah top god the top gun reference that's right that's right i'm trying to bring the
1: theological thunder here so so yeah like uh, tune in to check out good faith and uh let's pop them back over the the joel osteen podcast yeah that's right
0: <laughs> yeah for a brief shining moment we overtook joel Osteen, uh but that was because of our you know we had such a, a huge momentum in our launch because of david's
1: you know large following but uh, I think we've settled down. It's going to take us a little more work to okay. you know, to overtake Joel's team. Good, good, good. Well, I just alluded to one kind of miscellaneous question. I often hear you refer to movies, the Top Gun or the Star Wars reference. Uh, are there any movies or shows that you've seen this year that, that uh, you especially appreciated? And what significance did you glean from that film or show?
0: Well, like so much of the world, I was a, I became a Ted Lasso fan. Oh yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, the story there with its you know, aspects of, of fall, redemption, forgiveness, you know, such a rich picture of forgiveness on sort of multiple episodes there. I won't, won't give away spoiler alerts and so forth, but it's really a story of a community of fallen people who somehow find themselves thrown together. And so all of those rich human, themes of how we hurt one another betray one another heal one another have to forgive one another I think are really told in some lovely ways that I think are congruent with my understanding of human nature and human longing and aspirations
1: yeah yeah I that's definitely one of my favorites of the last few years actually it reminded me if if Aaron Sorkin did comedy uh, it, it might be Ted Lasso in that a lot of Aaron Sorkin's pieces are are constructed with with a, a cast of imperfectly perfect characters yeah. that are all just imperfect in their own ways each of them but they're all gathered to try to do good work together you know so that's uh that's that's how ted lasso reminded me of of aaron sorkin stuff yeah very much so very much so so a couple more questions before we wrap it up did you have any questions for me
0: yeah, I'm super curious. What prompted you to start this podcast? Because it sounds like you've got a, a bunch of different interests going on, and yet somehow you're finding time to. Do this. What is it, what's what's your aspiration in all this, and and your own sense of calling?
1: Yeah, well, it, it, there's overlapping passions there, uh, vocations and avocations. In a way, this these conversations started with one really long conversation I had over the course of several years with my dad when I first became a Christian. I had to learn how to make a ready defense for the hope that's within me with gentleness and respect uh, with my dad. And that conversation flowered out into so many other areas, whether it's history or sociology or politics. And during that time, those were the early 2000s, I began to realize that there were certain issues that I was really passionate about that I felt were very, very important. But the way that we spoke to each other, the way we spoke about each other, whether it's turning on your favorite AM radio program at the time, or now XM, or a vice presidential candidate in 2008, Sarah Palin, the way she referred to the opposition, I I realized that this was a trajectory that was going in in a direction. And and now we've seen, I mean, the last five years since, since Trump and Trumpism, I thought the most important issue was engaging folks who might feel differently about tax policy or foreign policy or any number of things that minimum wage, but engaging with them and remembering their humanity. Yeah. Not necessarily, and sometimes we can't even find the common ground on that particular issue, but we can find common ground on our humanity, right? So those things, plus I just, you know, from the very first time I heard a podcast and figured out how to, how to listen, get an app on my, uh, I'm not an Apple guy, I'm a Samsung guy. So when I finally got to start listening, I just fell in love with the medium and uh, it, it awoke in me. I, I come from a, I grew up as a New York theater rat and produced a lot of theater, some independent film. And you know, getting to produce something, Uh, I produced a bunch of other uh, show programs uh, before I started talking politics and religion without killing each other. And uh, just getting to do it, it it reminds me of how much I loved being in the theater, like, you know, everything from doing the research to the promotion to the interviews themselves to cleaning the toilets, you know, whatever it might be. (laughs) I just love being a part of it and bringing stories to new audiences or, so that's probably a longer answer to your question, but there are so No, many.
0: it's a great, it's good, it's lovely to hear. So thank you for doing that. Sounds like you're you found your particular calling here, and I'm really glad to be part of it.
1: I love it. I love it. It's it does give me a, a renewed sense of, of meaning that we're doing a little bit of little bit of good work in the world here. So, uh, so how can we find more information about you, the new podcast Good Faith, your consulting firm Consulting Within Reach, and all the great work that you're doing
0: yeah i've got a lot i'm wearing a lot of hats i know um so i would say look if you're interested in uh more of this intersection of faith and politics uh david french and i uh have this podcast good faith where we talk about that every week i think it'd be a great adjunct to what you the conversation you've got going here and i hope we'll find more ways to cross streams so encourage them to check out good faith and also check out redeeming babel if you're interested in that course on anxiety that i talked about Uh, We're going to have a course on this whole issue of how we find God's purpose in our institutional lives, our organizational lives. That's coming out in January, uh, a course that people can uh, take online there as well. Um, So yeah, those would be some of the most, uh, I think, obvious places to check out uh, at least the work that I'm doing at the intersection of faith and public life.
1: Yeah. And and just to underscore that, I've really benefited from so much of the content. I'm really loving good faith. Uh, I've already gone through a good chunk of one of the, one of the, um, courses on redeeming Babel. The the one on anxiety is really terrific, is really helpful and edifying. So, uh, can't recommend it highly enough. Yeah. I think everybody would appreciate it, whether you're Christian or not. So thank you, Kari. Thanks so much. Yeah. So thanks again, Curtis. It was great. Get hanging out with you and get to know you better. And as always, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button, leave us a review and comments, wherever you get your podcasts. And most importantly, tell a friend about us, go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you so much, Corey. It's great to be here. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts, give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.